Welcome to the Unfathomable Podcast with Elizabeth Wells, the series on the pathless path on love and loss, grief and renewal, spirit and sorrow. And this episode is on grief, isolation, and COVID-19. So when I first recorded this particular episode, I didn't publish it. It was almost a year ago, about two years into my grief. And now it's almost three years in. So I've taken a long break, but grief doesn't take a break. So I'm going back almost a year now, right before the second anniversary of my mom's passing, when a neighbor asked me, how are you doing? Are you doing better? Now, if you listen to some of the previous episodes or future episodes, you know I'm not generally a fan of the word better as a way to describe where someone may be in grief. But it's a word that is used, and if we use it about ourselves, I'm fine with that. It's when other people start saying, are you better? (laughs) Um, But this man asked me so kindly that I paused And I said, I look functional. I look like I manage. And then I added, and nobody sees me in the depth of my heart or in the privacy of my home. He said no more. I think he got it. I think he understood. Well, right around my mom's second death anniversary, several things happened. I had some really clear seeing moments which I had had before, but I had them in such a deep way that they impacted me differently. What I saw was that so many of my human needs in taking care of my mom in her last 23 days and when she passed were not met. Now, some people might think, well, what does that mean, need? You know, you're needy, or they might think, well, it wasn't about you. It's about your mother's needs. And I don't mean that kind of need. If you are familiar with compassionate communication or nonviolent communication, you might have a better understanding of what I need, what I mean by that word. So, for example, my mom and I were always open with each other in our emotions. And sometimes I'd cry. And there was a hired caregiver there in her dying days who kept saying to me, don't cry, don't cry around her. And I'd have to take time out from being with my mother and from doing all these other things to try to turn to this woman and say, it's okay. It's all right. But this woman kept pushing and pushing. And there were a ton of other little things that occurred or didn't occur between the hospital and hospice and people and just things I witnessed and memories I have that no one else has but me. You know, being in the managed healthcare system, we were dealing with different doctors and different specialists every single day. And the only through line at times was me. One doctor would counter the next. And sometimes I had to say to them, read the chart, read the chart, because they were going to recommend something that, you know, four doctors earlier said, no, she can't have this medication because it's in the chart, but they didn't read the chart, the new doctor, and on and on and on. So I was handling so many pieces. It was like a, you know, 20, 30, 40, 100 ring circus. And I couldn't be with my mom in the way I wanted to be with her, with the intimacy 
I needed with her. And she might say something entirely different. <laughs> but these are my memories. So I was, um, I carried a lot of trauma. And I wasn't at peace. And uh, I came to a place where maybe I accepted that I may never have peace about this. And finding that peace was a little bit more peaceful. You know, finding a place for all of this in one's heart and mind and brain and body, it takes a lot of work. And what I saw in this very clear seeing right before the second anniversary of her passing was that as much beauty as there may be in this world, I also saw that the world is a very messed up place. And it was so simple. The world is messed up. There's so many things in this world that are upside down. And everything that happened with my mom and the doctors and hospitals and all the decisions that we had to make, a lot of it was messed up. And it wasn't with blame or rancor or anger that I saw this. It was just, this is a fact. This is what occurred. And in seeing that, in this pure observation with a kind of a distance, I call it a clear seeing, there was peace. And then something else happened simultaneously. I felt my mother's love start to come in and step in front of all the trauma that I felt. I felt her love becoming bigger in me and around me. And it became a buffer of protection in the traumatic places and spaces. So where before, my brain was swinging back and forth like a rubber band, flying back again, back again to the trauma, the memories, everything that occurred or didn't occur, it started to dissipate. And the difficult memories that flooded me on a near-constant basis, I watched become more silent. So as I could feel my mother's love become suddenly bigger, something else happened. This is right before lockdown started in 2020 lockdowns because of COVID. I had been on the grief diet for two years. And the grief diet for me consisted of chocolate, potato chips, pizza, bread, alcohol, which I didn't usually drink. And, you know, and I also didn't usually do dairy. So um, just a lot of junk food. When my mom got sick, I lost nine pounds in three weeks. And then after she died, I lost more weight, another five or six pounds. So during these two years, I kept most of that weight off, but then suddenly within a few months, all the weight crept back on. And I didn't fault myself for sticking with a grief diet. I was actually told and knew I needed more salt and electrolytes because I was crying so much. And your body was just craving, my body was craving salt. But instead of healthy salts, I grabbed the chips. And then when your brain is so affected, carbohydrates can give you some really fun, fast energy. Maybe fun's not the word, but energy in a certain way and help you relax. And then there's just the comfort food. So I wasn't going to make myself wrong or beat myself up. But what happened is that I started waking up feeling so badly physically that I thought if I don't start eating well, I'm going to be off the planet in no time. And as much as I had often said to myself in my grief life that I don't want to be here, that was not completely accurate. My body, my spirit wanted me here. It was just painful to be here. So I picked myself up and thought, I have to eat better. 
and I knew how to change my diet. I had taught healthy vegan cooking for years, and I knew how to eat without meat and dairy and eggs and sugar, um, which is healthy for me, and to put lots of greens back in my diet. And I started swimming every single day and walking every day several times a week, and I lost a couple of pounds right away and started feeling better. And then COVID-19 hit. And as we were going into this, I remember feeling very calm. The crazier the world got, the calmer I became. I watched the panic settle in and the borders closed. And I'd go to the stores and witness the empty shelves and see the long lines. And while I had concerns for the society as a whole, I had no fear for myself. I watched, I observed, I got quieter, I felt more peaceful, and I felt my mother's love. And then the same neighbor that had asked me how I was um, a little while earlier, he texted me and he said, how you doing? And I texted back and I said, great. I've been in isolation for two years and the world just joined me. And he wrote back with some laughter emojis and said, glad the world is now familiar with your world getting to know your world. And I chuckled to myself and thought, not really, not really. You see, a lot of people who grieve are isolated, and there's many reasons for this. And there's different kinds of isolation. There's physical isolation, emotional isolation, social isolation. Sometimes in grief, no one knows how a person feels. And so that person then is alone in that. It's like an emotional isolation that there's no one they can share with and be completely transparent with. And that's a very deep isolation. And sometimes people are alone because there's no proper support system or ongoing community around them. So there's this social isolation and emotional isolation. And then there's the isolation of when you're around people, but you feel alone in a crowd because you're socially with them, but no one knows what you're really going through. And you have to wear a mask, pretend you're fine. And then there are many people who are really physically alone. The person they loved, they lived with. And that person is not physically there anymore. And I personally had a foot in all three categories. I didn't have community, didn't have a lot of close friends who lived near me. There were many days the phone wouldn't ring at all, except maybe somebody from a faraway state. And I remember thinking that if I died, nobody would find my body for a week or two. I was alone, a lot, and still am. And it didn't make the grief any better. I made sure I got up every single day. I made sure I showered, dressed, and got myself to a store. At least one store to have human contact, to see people, to have them smile at me or have me smile at them, or to listen to their stories or let them hear mine. But having someone who really gets you, who really understands you and loves you no matter what, that deep, deep, deep human connection, intimacy, trust that someone's going to be there for you, that one person you feel safe with, 
I didn't have that anymore. So going to the store became a comfort. And to this day, every single store I go in, I'm thinking about my mom. Because I shopped for her, for us. And so I, you know, wander the stores and stuff my tears and sometimes let them show. But I would still go to the stores every single day, even if I just bought one little item or just to walk the aisles. It took me out of isolation for a few minutes. So then here I am, second anniversary, ready to start moving into the world in a slightly different way. And COVID-19 hits and puts me back in the cubbyhole of grief. At first I watched the world and witnessed, as I said, and um, I watched other grieving people and how they were dealing with it. And I watched families, and I watched how some people could not go out the way they used to. And I watched the uncertainty and fear of the world. And I watched the world spin around me. And I felt strangely grounded. So when this neighbor said, oh, the world now knows what you're going through, I thought, not really. Because as a grief counselor beautifully put it once, she said, COVID-19 is not the great equalizer. That was the phrase you'd hear. It's the great equalizer. But for those of us who are grieving going into this, it wasn't. We were in lockdown with a deficit. We didn't have our loved one there anymore. We looked around and thought, well, you will see your loved one again. You know, your grandparents, your children, you're at a distance. You could FaceTime, you could hear them, you could talk to them, you could stand six feet apart, but we won't. And there were those people that were very cooped up with their families, right? And complaining, oh my gosh, I got to get away from my family. And for those of us who are grieving, we do anything to be cooped up with our loved one. We do anything for that. And it, it's so human. You need a break. You need time alone. You need respite care for yourself. I get that. We get that. But when a grieving person who has lost their child or lost their spouse or their parent or sibling or best friend hears a non-grieving person complaining about their child or spouse or parent, sometimes it's painful to hear because it's a reminder that we don't have anybody here at all. And some families were having a wonderful time in lockdown. I mean, highly creative, very disciplined, following routines, thriving on getting to know each other in a different way. And for others, their sense of family was splintered. And for others, it was splintered by death. And another reason why COVID was not the great equalizer initially was because a lot of our anchors were suddenly taken away. So for those grieving, sometimes we had created anchors. So swimming for me was an anchor. You know, I could do that every day. And I had started to at my around the two-year mark. I'm like, I'm swimming every day again. You know, my brain has shifted enough that I could get myself out to the pool almost every day as a daily activity. And then the pool's closed for almost two months. Poof, no more swimming. And I, how I took care of myself was gone. And it was also socialization for me because in swimming, you know, you turn to another swimmer, you have a little chit-chat, gone. And it wasn't the great equalizer because of the way COVID-19 hit different groups, different communities, how those communities are treated differently. The stories are all in the news. It's nothing new. 
So going back to when COVID first started, I was becoming more quiet inside as I watched the world spin into panic and fear. And I was comforted in my quiet. But then at some point it switched back again. I wasn't particularly grounded in my newfound peace in the grief. To the contrary, I was right back being alone again and isolated and feeling isolated. And whether you are isolated or not in your reality, that doesn't really make the difference. It's really how do you feel about it? And that's when trauma can emerge again and rear its head when alone with your own brain and mind and heart and your thoughts start to rewind into the places and spaces you thought you had dug yourself out of. And there's that rubber band again going back and forth, back to memories locked in loneliness. I wrote these words at that time. I wrote simply, Pandemic makes missing more. Unbidden memories arise. I feel like a prisoner on earth. The whole world is now too small. And I want to fly. That's how I felt. The memories that had receded came back. I watched these vulnerable groups of people. More and more people were grieving in some form. Grieving the death of a loved one, or perhaps grieving the loss of income, grieving that they weren't sure how they were going to get through the week or the month, just scared. And I watched the people who weren't able to be with their loved ones. You know, the people who couldn't get to the hospital beds. So there's this entire cultural level of anxiety or vigilance and fear that is depleting because the future is uncertain. So the whole country was grieving in some way. And people who lost their person before COVID, grieving. And then people who lost their people to COVID or during COVID. And most people don't talk or have a place to talk about this. They can look functional, but we don't know, like I said to my neighbor, what's going on in the center of their hearts. I was particularly moved by the stories of people who couldn't get to be with their loved ones at the hospital. It really broke me down. And then one evening I was watching a television news show. It was a special about COVID-19, the coronavirus. And towards the end of the show, the host and the senior contributor talked about the pain that people are in when they can't get to be with their loved ones when they die and when someone dies alone and how painful that is. And sandwiched between the host and the medical correspondent talking about this briefly, the medical correspondent then shared a story at length of his own father's passing and the details of how he got to be with his father and how it was one of the most meaningful events in his life that brought him comfort. And it can be that way for people. I was with my dad when he passed, and that gives me great comfort. I know exactly what happened. But for some people who weren't with their loved ones for whatever reason, it can take them to their knees. Listening to this show, I went into a complete meltdown. I don't talk about what happened 
the last 23 days of my mom's life and when she passed because it is so deeply painful. And there's secondary pain that comes because of the platitudes that people want to feed you about death or how people die. It was meant to be. There was a plan. There's a reason you don't understand, but you will one day, you know, all of that. And and maybe that helps some people get through their grief. But for other people, um, it doesn't. What it does, it, it, it kind of pushes down on their pain to say your pain I don't want to hear your pain, so don't tell me, and there's a reason. It's trying to put a Band-Aid on it. And it doesn't give voice to the deep sorrow and mourning that needs to occur. So after listening to this news show, I was so upset. Um, The next day I was at the acupuncturist, and he said, what has upset you? He said, what happened to your heart? You know, he takes your pulses. Because my heart's condition ricocheted back to where it was right after my mom died. Literally from just listening to that story. A beautiful story told in a different context, but horribly bad timing in COVID-19 when so many people can't get to be with their loved ones. And hearing that story just increased my sense of isolation and my own trauma. We want to tell the good and happy stories, but we don't want to leave out the hard and heart stories. They also have a place so that people can be seen and witnessed and heard and know they're not alone in what they feel and know they're not crazy. And so they're not suffering alone. Because often is that it is that loneliness that keeps them moving back into the trauma and the memories. There's no one to love them within their pain, to comfort, to be with them. We want to have room for all kinds of stories and that some people may grieve forever. There are some things maybe in life we don't get over. A great intuitive many years ago said to me, She said, you are one of the professional grievers for this world, grieving a world that's dying, that doesn't know enough to grieve itself. Now, I don't know if the world is dying. I don't know if I believe that, but I have had a sense of understanding grief since I was a child and death. It was like a string that has played in my soul. I mean, there's humor and there's joy and celebration. They all play too. (laughs) If you know my body of work, you'll know that. But there's this other deep place. I was able to be with people who suffer with grief easily. For many years, they have come to me. Um, I, I teach writing, journal writing. So many people come to journaling to tell and share their stories, all kinds of stories. Stories are such a great, beautiful connecting device human stories, or the stories of sap rising in a tree. Stories that touch the web of life and that like gossamer fabric move and shimmer and veil and uncover that our deepest truth is love. Shortly after my mom died, I said to her, Mom, can you get over grief? Can you really get over grief? And I felt her silently say to me, yes, and I will help you. 
and that gave me comfort. I remember my grief counselor a couple of times saying to me, you may always feel this way. You may always go to this place. You may always remember certain things. And I, agree, I agreed with her. And sometimes hearing that it was intolerable, I just thought, I can't. The pain is too great. I can't. I can't live with this degree of suffering the rest of my life. It hurts too much. I have to find a way that this is going to soften through time or, or dissipate. And so I held out for what my mom said to me. Shortly after this broadcast, it was the same time period, shortly after I felt like my heart was all over again, ripped out of my chest, chopped into a thousand pieces and shards of glass that could not fit back in, I took a short bicycle ride. And I felt the wind in my hair for a split second. And it was a very short ride because one of the tires was off. <laughs> Literally, like a little bit down the block and then walking back. But in this split moment of being in the wind and the bicycle, I had this sad acceptance. And it was a sense that there may always be a place in my heart that hurts, that I will always remember, even if I don't want it to be, even if it makes me sad, even if it hurts and takes me to my knees. There may always be this place and accepting that there was this place in my heart that might always feel this way gave me a bit of peace. I can still laugh and smile and joke and manage to function and accept that there's this little place that's really sad and scared and hurt and dark and questions. It was a different kind of acceptance that brought me some peace. I was reminded of my mom in her elder years. She remembered something that hurt her when she was 18 years old. And I remember saying to her, Mom, that still upsets you? She said, yes, yes. And I can point my finger to places in my life that happened 20, 30 years ago that have, have a sting. The sting is less, but I remember. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's an acknowledgement for the fullness and the embrace and the rainbow colors of a life that has been rich. And it has given me information. Move this way, move that way. Move closer, move away. This particular grief about my mom is the hardest thing for me. The memories are hard and some are beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I do hope my mother's love and the love of peace come to replace the grief in a bigger way on the brink of this third anniversary. I can hope, but I can tell you this year is hard again in some ways harder than last year. And there are many people that want to keep their grief. I get that. It's a touchstone. Because there are times when you connect with grief and in that you connect to your loved one. I so get that. I can use grief in that way. 
It can take you to the quiet, silent spaces where you search for them, talk aloud to them, and maybe for a split second you feel them again. You seek their counsel, their love. You stand on a bridge between time when everything stops and disappears and it's just you and them again. The world goes away. There are some people that say your grief is commensurate with how much you loved. You know, the greater you love, the bigger the grief. I don't think so. I think the love is always so much bigger than the grief. My love for my mom and all those who've gone on, that love will continue on. And it is love that can make me weep. It is love that can make me weep. A kind of love so inexpressible that only tears come. During this period of time, COVID-19, at this moment of, I don't know, taken well over, well over, 450,000 lives, maybe closer to 500,000 now. In this country alone, I think about all those people. I think about their loved ones. And several who I know, I think about all the professionals related to those people, caring for them, taking care of the world, store clerks, bank tellers, people in the public eye, I think of them and it takes my heart on a journey. The world is small, like I said before. Sometimes it feels too small and I want to fly. And sometimes it's small and in thinking of all the people in this world, I just want to wrap my arms around them and around us. For all the world's people loving and caring in their own ways, For all those who have lost deeply before COVID and during COVID, whatever you have lost, wherever you are, whoever you are, whoever is listening to this right now, this moment, it is my wish, desire, prayer, blessing, whatever you want to call it, that you may feel and know a sense of connection a sense of connection that you may feel met and find a thread of peace for yourself today and that this peace and love may hold you and bring comfort to your heart. You have been listening to the Unfathomable Podcast with Elizabeth Wells. And you can find out more about your creativity, your peace, your stories, the stories you came to tell, and my work at my website, elizabethwells.com. That's Elizabeth with a Z, and Wells is spelled a little differently. It's W-E-L-L-E-S, elizabethwells.com. Please subscribe to my podcast and join my mailing list. And thank you for listening. Thank you.